And uh, please open uh, to Luke 22. Uh, Luke 22, and we're going to be focusing on verses 1 to 7 of that passage. We're starting a series uh, leading up to Easter, looking at uh, this chapter together, uh, charting the last moments of Jesus' life as Luke records them. And you can see uh, just on the back of the service sheet an outline uh, of uh, where we'll be heading as we look at those verses Together And just as you find Luke 22, let me ask you, can you imagine uh, a world without God? Can you imagine uh, a world totally removed uh, from uh, his presence and power? For some it's a wistful, uh, almost romantic notion. The likes of John Lennon have imagined such a world and the enduring popularity of his song, Imagine, hints that he's very much not alone. So can you imagine it? A world totally without God, or to put it another way, a godless world. A world free from his power and influence, a world free from any sense of any obligation whatsoever to him. Can you imagine all that you have, your life, your relationships, your hobbies, your work, your free time, your money, you name it, all of it. And there is no God, uh, no power, no influence above you or over you with any say or sway in any of it. It's all just yours. If you can imagine such a world, a self-determined world, tonight's passage is going to show us uh, people who make plans for just such a place. Uh, In these first uh, six verses of our passage we see the plans made by those who want to be totally rid of God. So let's meet the conspirators together. You can see them uh, on the outline there. The first of them uh, we meet in verse 2, the authorities, the Jewish authorities in Jesus' time. Have a look at what verse 2 says of them. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus for they were afraid of the people. Here's uh, the first uh, parties in this plan to be rid of God and their plan is very simple, isn't it? Get rid of his presence, totally. Want nothing to do with him. They set this as their constant ambition. This is what they're about day and night. Let's get rid of him. But what is less clear is why they would want to do such a thing. I mean, they know him. They've seen him uh, for now three years. They've seen his power and influence writ large. Uh, Earlier in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 4, we're told that the people were so amazed at his teaching because he taught as one with authority. Again in chapter 4, we're told that he had so much authority he could command evil spirits out. In chapter 5, we're told that he claimed authority to forgive all sin on earth. All the way through this book, we see the power and influence of this man, authority over sickness, authority over handicap, even authority over death as he raises a little girl. Why get rid of him? All this power, all this influence. Here is a man with clear authority and therein lies the problem. You see, the the characters we meet in verse 2 are in charge of their world. They're the ones with authority over the people. They're the ones who exercise awesome political power in this place. They're right where they want to be. And along comes one who's going to challenge all that. Along comes one who by his words and actions demonstrates an authority they could only dream of. As they see him at work, as they see his words and actions demonstrating this authority, their fear grows 
that uh, there will come a day that the, the people, the crowds, will see them as phony rulers and will replace them uh, with Jesus. They fear that the longer he is around, the looser their grip on power will be. And so as their fear grows, their ambition to be rid of him grows as well. I suspect if we look at verse 2 carefully, it's a power play that we see again, again and again in our world, isn't it? When it comes to God, when it comes to the threat, when it comes to be wanting to be rid of him because we're in charge. It's a rejection of God's rule that can be heard from the likes of the popular atheist Richard Dawkins who says in his book The God Delusion of the World He Imagines Without a God, Without Any power or influence over him, he says this, the world we observe has precisely the properties we would expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing, but blind, pitiless indifference. That's the world he longs for and imagines. It's a godless worldview that we see in the, in the realms of academia but it works its way through all the way down to the person in the street, doesn't it? It dominates our media. It's all through the structures of our world and our city. Our education systems, our political systems, our justice systems, our finance systems are all based around the idea that God has been got rid of. And don't we see the same stumbling block amongst many who are exploring Christianity? God and his word may answer many of the questions we have, many of the challenges we may face him with. He may offer the very things that we long for, freedom from guilt, freedom even from the fear of death. He may offer all this, freedom to live for something that really matters, something that will last. He can offer all of that, but when, when the challenge comes to hand over authority to him, to say he is in control and not me, well, that's a fearful thought, is it not? You don't have to look too far to see this response to Jesus. But as I looked at this passage, uh, the the scary thing I think is while you don't have to look very far to see this sort of attitude out there, uh, you don't have to look too far to see it uh, within our own community, do you? Yes, we're happy to acknowledge him as king. We've praised him as king tonight. We've prayed to him as king. But are there not parts of our lives, uh, realms in our lives, rooms in our lives where his authority is not allowed in? We still declare autonomy. That's my space. And we stand our ground. I'm in charge here. I remain the final arbiter when it comes to this. There can be lots of things, can't it? There are areas of our lives where we refuse to submit to the Lord Jesus. Be it the Bible's call to forgive someone and we say, no, I will not do that. Not if you knew, not if you realised what they had done. Or perhaps it's the opposite. It's the refusal to hear the news of forgiveness that Jesus offers. Yes, he has authority on earth to forgive sins, but not mine. Not fully, not after what I've done. Or perhaps for students, it's uh, thinking through career choices that you're making free from any influence he might have, any sway he might have in that decision. Or for workers, it might be the way we work. We just don't let him in to that part of our lives. That's independent territory. Or it might be what we do with our free time. So many areas of our lives we can say, I'm still in charge here. 
I suspect for most of us there are hills that we are still yet to die on when it comes to Christ. Places that, uh, in our lives that we are yet to hand over control, although we know we must. So there's the authorities, the first conspirators in this plan to be rid of Jesus and then verse 3 we meet another, Satan. Then the Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, one of the twelve. You know, I reckon it's such a helpful verse. Uh, uh, we've got in verse 2 a, a very human picture of opposition to God, a very uh, sort of basic worldly picture but whenever we're tempted to think that this plan to be rid of God, to live a life free from his influence is a, a rational or sensible plan, Luke says, no, there's something much bigger at play here. Now here we see in verse 3 the plan to be rid of God is not just the plan of any one person or authority. The driving force behind plans like this is Satan himself. It's always been that way. Right from the earliest chapters of the Bible, Satan was there in the Garden of Eden doing this very thing, getting rid of God, seeking who he could devour. And here he is again, Satan entering Judas, intent on taking Jesus' life. That's his goal. His plans are evil. His plans are to destroy all that is good and of God in this world and he has set his plan and now, verse 3, he makes his move. And how does he do it? How does Satan work out this scheme to be rid of God in our world? Well, it's very simple but very, very powerful. I think the best description of it in the Bible comes in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 and it says this, He sets about blinding our eyes to just how glorious, how beautiful, how good Jesus really is. That's all he does. He shuts our eyes. And if you want to see what that looks like when your eyes are closed to Jesus' goodness. Now Luke gives us exhibit A, Judas. Have a look at him in verses 3 to 6. What happens uh, when your eyes are blinded or even dulled to Jesus' goodness? Well, it's very simple. You grow more and more ignorant of his value and more and more willing to exchange him for some cheaper prize. Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and he discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money and he consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. It's an incredibly ignorant plan, isn't it? Jesus is worth more than all the universe he created, much more. And yet Judas sells him out, we're told uh, in one of the other Gospels, for 30 pieces of silver. It's not a great trade, is it? It's breathtakingly foolish. Only someone who has no idea of who Jesus is would make a trade like this. It's ignorant, but it's also betrayal, isn't it? Uh, While verse 3 tells us that Satan is very much God's enemy and very much at work in these plans, what verses 4 to 6 do, which are so helpful for us, is that they remind us that the opponents to God's plans are are not just outside, out there, but very much from within. This desire to be rid of Jesus comes from within the human heart. Our own dark heart hatches plans like this. Jesus tells us uh, in in another part of his Gospel that from within the human heart comes all sorts of evil, all sorts of plans just like this. 
You see, Judas isn't just some sort of pawn in some cosmic cruel game, an innocent in the hands of an evil power. No, his heart has planned this. In fact, his heart is shown to us earlier in Jesus' life. If you look across to John chapter 12, you'll see his heart revealed there. We have this amazing account of of a woman meeting Jesus and she's so entranced by who he is, so aware of his goodness and his value, she, she takes her most precious possession, a huge jar of perfume, and pours it all out on his feet. And Judas, seeing this, is so outraged. A perfume's worth a year's wages. It, it could have been sold and, and given to the poor. Think of the waste. But we're told in John 12 uh, that uh, the poor weren't in his mind at all. John says this, he did not say this because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief. As the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Here was an opportunity, here was a moment for him. And the plan Judas is hatching here in Luke 22 is just the same thing. Here is the opportunity to get rich. It's a plan born of basic, boring greed. He chooses financial comfort over Jesus. Judas is led to betray him because of a blind heart, ignorant to Jesus' value and willing to exchange him for a cheaper prize. But again, like the authorities, I want to say that it would be wrong of us to look at Judas and uh, despise him, to think, isn't it good that we're not like him? And the Bible makes very clear that we, all of us, are ignorant of just the same thing, guilty of just the same betrayal. Uh, in Romans chapter 1, Paul makes it very clear for us. He, he used and uses this word exchange. He says what we have done is we've taken the living God, as valuable as he is, and we've traded him in for deaf, dull, mute idols. That we've exchanged the truth of God, his value, his compassion, his love, his holiness, all of these things and we've traded it in for a lie that says he's not good. That we've exchanged good relationships for broken ones. Our heart plots the exact same course as Judas. And do you see where the course ends up? Judas gets rid of God. He achieves his plan. He gets his prize, 30 pieces of silver and it destroys him. Matthew 27 we read, when Judas who had betrayed him saw Jesus take it away, he was seized with remorse and he threw the money into the temple and then he went away and hanged himself. The pattern is clear. Trading God in for a cheaper prize will result in the gaining of that prize, absolutely. But you will also lose everything. The testimony is repeated again and again in the scriptures. Uh, We're told, what good is it a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his very self? Well, these words are in the book of Proverbs. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. It's no small thing to trade God in for a cheaper prize. To set yourself up in a world without God, the results are always going to be devastating. As I looked at that this week, I reckon we come to this part of the Gospels as we get near Easter and we see Judas do this and we glaze over it very quickly. 
I'm not sure I feel this as I should. Feel the weight of it. Do you? I too easily lose sight of the tragic consequences of being rid of God. And what makes the story of Judas, I reckon, so important for us is he won't let us imagine for a moment the consequences are small. They are tragic, disturbingly so. And let me give you an example of the consequences from our own city, a story from Sheffield. It's the story of uh, Tiffany Wright. I don't know whether you know her story. It's a very short one. The article I I read uh, when I first came across her story uh, in this magazine uh, begins with a picture of a sparse bedroom with an unmade bed in the middle. And then you read these words. Tiffany Wright starved to death in this room on a urine-soaked bed, surrounded by soiled nappies. It was several days before her mother had called 999. Tiffany was three years old. As you read the article, you find parents who have demonstrated a complete disregard for this girl's well-being, almost since birth. They used to lock her in a room above the pub they owned for days on end. She was an inconvenience, a burden. Now listen to these words from the article. The police patrol made it uh, first to the white-walled corner plot. Upstairs in the, in the flat above the pub, the officers found Sabrina Hurst, the mother, crouched in a bedroom doorway over a small body. The child was dead. One of the officers lifted Tiffany's arm and noted, noted that it was floppy, not stiff with rigor mortis, that her skin was tinged with the odd blackening pallor and that her eyes were sallow and sunken. Stranger still was that she was covered in insect bites, adding to the building suspicion that she had been dead for some time. A dog barked in another room and it drew the officer's attention away and in the next room he found a baby screaming purple with panic, naked in a dishevelled cot. That's our city. Can you imagine a world without God? A godless world. Well, live free from God's power and influence. Live a life rid of that and you win your prize. Their prize, Tiffany's parents, well, it's hard to see it under the rubble of this story, isn't it? But I suspect it is the shining, gleamy prize known as self. If there is no God, then all I am committed to ultimately is my own comfort. And for the parents it meant freedom not to bother. Freedom not to bother for another human made in God's image. Freedom not to care enough to notice. I wonder, and this story has really bent me out of shape in this past week, I wonder if this is what Richard Dawkins had in mind when he speaks of a world made up of blind, pitiless indifference. And the thing is, it's not just the extremities of our world where we see this trade being made. It's sewn into the very fabric of our culture. The magazine that this article comes from is full of the very things that we trade God in for and most of them are far more acceptable and respectable than Tiffany's parents. But equally tragic. The presence of the living God for what? Well, all the way through the magazine, it's materialism. Now that's Judas, isn't it? He's the ultimate materialist. Financial comfort was his prize. Why go with Jesus? He's going to the cross. He's going to the place of shame. He's going to death. I choose comfort. 
And then there's hedonism. Why choose Jesus? I choose the freedom to do what I want. And then there's popularism. Uh, The magazine is full of the the gods of our age, the, the popular ones. Why choose Jesus? His path is rejection. And now you don't have to look very far to see these exchanges in our world, but to be honest, you don't have to look too far to see them in the Christian community either. So let me ask you this tonight. What is your prize? The thing that if you got it, it would bring you so much joy. That if you could gain it, uh, that would be your prize. And one of my favourite uh, phrases in the Bible uh, comes in Hebrews, speaking of Jesus' life and what drove him. It said, the joy set before him. That's what drove him, the joy set before him. What is the joy set before you? The thing that drives you on in life, that's your prize. You'll know what it is because it's the thing that dominates your thought life. It'll be the thing that uh, you measure your life by, how you're going, how successful things have been. The joy set before you is the thing you shape all life around, above all else, that you make your decisions by it. And for Judas it was comfort and the opportunity that money brings And when you see it unveiled like this, it is horrible, is it not? And so what's yours, your prize? What is this uh, the thing in the past week or, or month or year that's made you happiest, that's brought you the most joy? Was it a place, an event, perhaps a result, some kind of breakthrough, a new experience, a person? What was it? What is your prize? Now remember in all of this, as we look at Judas, he's an insider. He's one of the twelve. He is a follower of Jesus. He'd experienced Jesus' powerfully good presence. He'd experienced his love for some three years. He knows all this and yet he trades him in for money. Are there not things that compete for our heart just the same way? They're the same things that compete for our world's heart. Materialism. We're not immune, are we? How good is stuff? Nice stuff, new stuff, useful stuff. How good is the good life? Uh, Perhaps a makeover on the house or the holiday. Does stuff tempt your heart? Does it fill your thoughts, your activities, your plans? Or hedonism? Is that your prize? When the moment comes between choosing satisfaction in Jesus or satisfaction in getting drunk with your mates last night, which did you choose? Was it the instant buzz of that moment or was it the slow-burning joy of Jesus? Or is sex your prize? When the moment comes with your boyfriend or girlfriend to stop and you just keep going, because sex is so good, Perhaps better than your relationship with Jesus. Worth the trade? Or you're sitting alone at the computer and the choice comes to click on that image or not. A choice you face many, many times and again you choose some nameless woman and leave him behind. Or is it popularism? Choosing reputation over Christ choosing anonymity over being clearly aligned with him. 
That's what Peter, the Apostle Peter, will do just a few hours later in our passage. Are there not moments when we are happy to drop Jesus cold to maintain relationship with colleague or family or friend? What's your prize? The thing that you might trade him for? Well, as we think on this, uh, there's something else that our passage wants us to know. You see it there in verse 22, the problem with such plans. Now, the great problem is this. The plan to get rid of God leads to judgment. Simple. Woe to the man who betrays him. Truth is, you couldn't make a more costly exchange. Betrayal is an act that you can't possibly win with. It is a lose-lose. Now, the picture of Judas in Matthew 27 is of complete regret. That's the consequence of betrayal. Eternal regret of getting to uh, his throne and seeing Jesus, seeing him for all that he is, all that he is for you. And you've traded him in for what? I imagine when anyone who has made that exchange comes before him under his eternal judgment, it will be hard to remember whether what it was. As you cling to some prize that you've won instead of him, the regret will be immense. And know that for Judas, the trade was made in one tragic moment, wasn't it? One decision, one night, one exchange. But for most of us, the trade is made as a matter of small increments over time, isn't it? Small payments. Each a step away from the greatest treasure we will ever see. It's hard to take, isn't it? Let me ask you, what is the hope for a betrayer? Well, our hope is written all the way through this passage. Our hope is that our story is different to Judas. Our hope is that someone might come along and separate us out from betrayers, although we don't deserve it. Our hope is that someone might come along and take the consequences of betrayal and take them far away from us. And know that there is no ground for that hope in me or you. There is no ground for that hope anywhere in this world. We know that and so does our God And so our final point on the outline there, we see the plan he makes in light of that. While all of these plans that we make, the big ones and the small ones, rage all around our God, all around Jesus in this passage, plans to be rid of him, while the effects of those plans are getting worse and worse, God stays the course of his plan. It's just so wonderful. It's remarkable. The very moment in history, the very climax of the plans to get rid of God where everything is coming together. Do you see it there in verse 5? They're delighted how well it's coming together. That very moment is the moment that God's plan is breaking in and overruling. This is not their moment. This is his moment. There's no accident at all here. There's no coincidence. This has all been planned to happen in this way, in this place, on that day. Did you notice the hints either end of our passage, verse 1 and verse 7? Verse 1, we're told the feast of unleavened bread, the Passover was approaching. And then verse 7, it comes, the day arrived for the Passover lamb to be sacrificed. A day when God's people would remember their rescue from slavery and judgement, their rescue from this poor decision in the past, their rescue all because of the blood of a lamb, Well, that's the day God unveils his rescue plan for the whole world. 
This is not their day. This is the day our Lord has made. The day he unfurls not another deadly, futile plan in our world, but a purpose-filled, life-giving, life-changing plan. It's the day he makes his exchange. We've seen the exchanges we make. Do you want to see God's exchange? You couldn't imagine a more costly one. His life for you. Our only hope as betrayers sits with the one who sits at that table and says these words in verse 19, This is my body given for you. This is my blood which is poured out for you. They're wonderful words, aren't they? No wonder he called us to remember them. These are the words of hope for betrayers. Words that declare his plan. As we're making plans to get rid of him, he's making plans to forgive us. As we're trading him in for some cheap prize, he is buying us back with his life. The one worth more than the universe he made, the ruler of God's creation, the one worthy to receive praise and power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the bright morning star which we traded in, buys us back. And unlike us, when he's made his exchange, he has no regrets. It's the very reason he came. So what hope is there for the betrayer? Well, none from us, none from our world, but amazing hope from him. And tonight we've seen the story of Judas. I think it's the saddest story in all the Bible. The story of a man who exchanged God for some cheap prize. And for some here tonight, that is still your story. And that won't change unless you accept his exchange, his life for you. But for most here tonight, while we still need to grieve the plans that we make, we can rejoice and we can be glad in the plans that he makes. Rejoice that he is in control, not us. Your story changed because of the old story we have to keep telling one another. The story of the cross. The story of forgiveness from the friend we betrayed. My old story, the one I regret, is now hidden in his story, which is a much, much better one by far. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this picture of the ignorant betrayal that we can be guilty of. And we pray that you would help us, each one of us, and together to search our hearts for the ways that we are tempted to exchange you for other things. We pray that you would once more fill our hearts with the joy of you above these things. And we praise you that you are a God who knows us, who knows our hearts, and yet you forgive us. And we praise you that you are a God who is in complete control. We praise you for your plan of rescue. Amen.